This morning, our Old Testament reading is taken from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so that they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out from the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. One more passage. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. And I'm going to read verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not like anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to him, to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy, not, buy one. For I tell you that th- that which is written must be fulfilled. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Well, this is the reading of God's holy word. I read a little bit more than I was supposed to, but um, I'm a little, I'm calming down. (laughs) Um, I noticed that when I looked here, I had pages one through three and then page seven. (laughs) And uh, my wife just brought in the the other pages. So I'm calming down a little bit. Um, This is the final sermon. I think there are many more sermons that could be preached on Simon Peter. There's, There's wonderful things to learn from Simon Peter. Um, We've been looking at Simon Peter because I think the New Testament just thrust him out in front of us, unlike others. I mean, I know a little bit about Thomas, know a little bit about this one and that one, but I know a whole lot more about Simon Peter because he seems to be the one that just is pushed out in front of us like Paul, and later on we have Peter in front of us all the time. And so the way Jesus deals with Simon Peter is the way he's going to deal with us. So we take him as a model and we learn all that we can from how Jesus deals 
with Simon Peter. And if you'll remember, as we started our, our study, how did he come to know Jesus? How did he come to be introduced by Jesus? Last night in our family time, we talked about uh, all the different ways Jesus was involved with people's lives. And, you know, like one day I, I asked the girls last night, I said, so one day Jesus goes up to Matthew and he says, follow me. You think that's the first time Jesus ever met Matthew? Probably not. Probably passed by many times. That's where Jesus lived. Well, how does Jesus, uh, how does he, how is he revealed? How is he introduced to Simon Peter? Well, his brother, Andrew, brings him to meet Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, Jesus looks at him and says, You're Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. You shall be called a rock. And so I'm sure these words really stirred up his interest. Who is this man who calls me a rock? Well, as we've studied Simon Peter, we know that Simon Peter has Jesus in his boat. Jesus preaches. Jesus tells him what side of the boat to throw the net out on, and all the fish are there. And then we see him repenting and saying, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Later on, Jesus is walking on that storm-tossed waves and all of that sea, and Peter wants to walk with him, and Jesus tells him to come, and he does. Later on, Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they answer. And then, they, then he says, who do you say that I am? And he's the one. He steps out in front of everybody, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And it was then that Peter was called, he, Jesus called Simon, son of John, Peter. That's when he called him Rock. So Jesus has been making this man into a disciple. And it's not been without some work. It's like Jesus goes to a quarry and he takes this stone out and it's rough and it's not, and it's not smooth and he's, he's having to work on this guy. I mean, remember how he has to correct him several times. There's that time when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to rise on the third day. And he says, uh, you know, God forbid it. And he has to correct him. And then we've just seen earlier uh, in this, um, this passage here, that Jesus has to correct him again when he says, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus looks at him and says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. So he corrects him again. So Jesus is moving closer to the cross. And as he moves closer to the cross, Jesus is telling him there's an adversary out there. His name is Satan. And this adversary, he's coming to sift you, Simon Peter. And what he wants to do is he wants to prove that you are nothing but chaff. He wants to prove that you are not a real believer, not a real Christian. You're not a real disciple. You're a temporary believer. That's what he wants to do. And then he tells him, he says, but on the other hand, you accused man, there's an advocate. There's an advocate who's also gone before the throne of God, who's been praying for you secretly, before the very face of God himself. Of course, that's Jesus. So to, this morning, I, wanna, I want you to see three points. First, the adversary. Second, the accused. And third, the advocate. So let's look at the adversary. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, he's the adversary. He's demanded permission to, sit, to sift you like wheat. Other translations read, he desires to have you. He desires to pick you apart. 
He asserts before the throne of God, Simon, that you, when this trial is all over, you will be nothing but the stuff that wind blows away. You will not be the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and is stored in the, in the barn. You're going to be the chaff, the stuff that breaks off of the wheat kernel and is blown away, that outer covering that is blown away. He is asserting before God the Father that you are a rocky soil believer. Y'all know what a rocky soil believer is? A seed. Tonight we're going to talk about sowing and reaping this commercial, about sowing and reaping. You take a seed and you, you sow it on rocky soil, and sometimes rocky soil either is like bedrock underneath it or it's so gravelly that the seed hits the gravel and there's no place for the root to start forming, and so everything goes up. So you get this big, big, all this foliage is out there, but there's no root down there. And when the sun comes out, when the pressure comes out from the heat of the sun, there's nothing but big leaves, and the leaves have no way to get any moisture, and they just all dry up and burn up. That is what Satan is saying about Peter. That's what you are. You are a false believer. Not only does he assert it before God's throne in heaven, he desires the opportunity to prove it. He desires the opportunity to prove that his repentance is not real. His faith in that confession we've studied, not real. This submission that he's offering to Jesus Christ is just, as, as old commentators would say, spirit, spurious. That's a hard word to say. We don't usually say that too much. Not real, outward, but not real. And incidentally, think about it like this. He doesn't just wish to prove that Peter is not the real thing. He wishes to prove that Jesus' words are not real and that Jesus, his kingdom, is not going to be built. Who is it that called Simon the rock? And who is it that said that I will build my church on this man and these disciples and their confession? It's Jesus. Who is it that said the gates of hell will not prevail against this confession and my, my apostles in this church? Jesus did. And if this person fails, if this person, Peter, fails, not only does he fail, but Jesus' words are also without any power. They're meritless. This person, this Satan, his, this adversary asserts that Peter's chaff, he desires to prove it, and he, he has received permission to do it. We have an adversary. Peter, you have an adversary. He's a roaring lion. And let me just put it this way, guys. The devil doesn't play fair. You ever thought about that? Your enemy doesn't play fair. He plays dirty pool. He's like a trapper. You know what trappers do? Trappers watch their, what they're after. They watch the animal. They watch the animal. They study the animal. They you know where he goes, when he goes. They know when he goes up the tree, when he goes down the tree. They know when he goes in his hole, when he comes out of his hole. And that's what Satan's doing with Peter. Peter, he's watching you. He's studied everything about you. He's figured all your strengths out. He knows right when you're, when you're not weak. And he's studied you all out. He doesn't come at us from the front. He comes at us from the back. He comes at us from points of weakness. And in Simon Peter's case, Satan knows that Peter will eventually be separated from his master. As long as Jesus is with Peter and Peter's with Jesus, he doesn't have a chance. Now there's a sermon for us, isn't it? As long as you are close to Christ, he doesn't have a chance. But the devil is looking for this 
separation. De- the devil's looking for this point of distance between Jesus and Peter. And it says in Luke twenty two fifty four, Peter was following Jesus at a distance. Remember, he's arrested. He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's taken before the high priest for this interrogation. And it was then while Peter is unaware, he's unaware that the trap is right there. He's unaware that the trapper is right there. He's unaware. He's at this you know, warming himself by the fire, and Jesus was right over there. They're at a distance from each other, and in lickety-split, all of a sudden, he says, I do not know the man. You know, my father, he used to, <laughs> my father, he used to do things. I even asked my mom and my, my, my sisters, I said, did y'all, there's some things, did you ever see my dad do some of these things? And they said, I never saw him do that. And I used to sit behind him, I used to sit beside him, and I used to look at him. And when he would see a highway patrol or a police officer pull over, some, somebody pull, pull him over, he would go, under his breath, he'd go, got him. And I, I never have forgotten it. I, Mom, did you ever hear, hear Daddy do that? No, never heard that. I did. Satan got him. Satan thinks I got him. He's nothing but chaff. Everything that Jesus has said, nothing but chaff. Peter, not real. He's just chaff. Got him. It appears that Satan has proven his point. So we see the adversary. We see the accused, and that's Simon Peter. And Jesus loves Simon Peter, and he warns him. And he tells him Satan has come before the judgment seat of God, and he tells him to pay close attention do you know? Here's Satan. He's going to sift you. Do you, rem- do you remember a picture of somebody else going before the judgment seat of God to accuse somebody in the book of J-O-B? He comes before God and he says, this man only loves you because of the things you give him. If you take them away, if you touch his flesh, he will curse you and he will want to die. This is what's going to happen to you, Simon. Do you remember that story about Job, Simon? He's coming to sift you. Pay attention, man. Think about this, man. It's your responsibility to humble yourself, Simon Peter. It's your responsibility to ask for that quick refresher course on spiritual warfare, Simon Peter. Are you ready? Are you going to ask me for that quick refresher course on watching and praying? It's your responsibility to be ready. You must fix your eyes on me and exercise your faith, but... As we studied last week, what did he do? Who did he fix his eyes on? What power did he fix his eyes on? He fixed his eyes on his own confidence. He asserted his own strength. Lord, instead of being responsible, he said, Lord, with you I'm willing to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus does something. Jesus indicates to him in the conversation that he's going to be overwhelmed. He says, And when you have turned again, you will strengthen your brothers. It's indicative of a fall. And he still asserts his strength. And so Jesus gets very pointed and he makes a prophecy. This is what he says. This certainly will happen today. I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. This is going to happen And immediately he goes out after he fails and he goes out and weeps bitterly. Let him who thinks he stands take heed 
lest he fall. Let him who doesn't ask for that refresher course in prayer, let him who doesn't go to the throne of God and ask for grace when he needs to, and he trusts in his own strength, let him take heed lest he fall. So we see the adversary and we see the accused. And now we're going to take a look at the advocate. Even as the adversary appeared before the judgment seat of God to say, I'm going to sift this man and prove that he's nothing but chaff, there's another person who comes before the throne of God's judgment. And this is the advocate of this accused man named Peter. And this advocate is Jesus Christ. And what does the advocate say? What does he do? Verse 32 says, But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Just as this adversary of your soul has come and demanded permission to prove, to, to assert, he asserts your chaff, he wants permission and an opportunity to do it, he says, I have come before the Lord. And while you're in his hand and going through this, tri- this trial, I have prayed that your faith not, fa- not fail. In Luke twenty two fifty four through 62, Simon Peter denies Jesus. He's in the trap. Satan, as John Wheat would say, got him. Satan's right. Simon Peter's guilty, charged, nothing but chaff. He can go before God's throne and say, see, I told you so. But there's something else happening here. Have you taken a notice to what it says there about Peter's eyes? Jesus looked at Peter right when he denied him the third time. And what happens? Tears begin to fall down his eyes. Why is, he, why is he crying? Why is he crying? He remembered the word the Lord had given to him and immediately he went out and he wept bitterly. Why is he crying? He remembered the words. Would Peter have walked away? Would he have forgotten Jesus' prophecy, this prediction? If, would he have forgotten how many times, how many conversations have you had in the past week that you don't even remember what you said? Jesus looked at him at just this moment. Remember, these guys can see each other. This is something you read your Bible, read your Bible, think about it. He's over here. Jesus is over there. Right when it happens, Jesus turns and they look at each other. He remembers. He begins to weep. This stout-hearted man, this manly man, this leader of the pack is reduced to tears. Why is he repenting? Why doesn't he just go out and have remorse like Judas and hang himself? Why? Both men are guilty. Both men are guilty of heinous crimes, heinous sins before God. One's a betrayer. One's a denier. Why? What's the difference between the two of them? Well, there's only one reason we're given in verse 32. And Jesus said, it's precious. Listen. But I've prayed for you. That's the difference. He doesn't say, I prayed for you, Judas. He says, I prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith not fail. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 2, Chapter 17 says, The perseverance of the saints depends not upon the free wi- on their free will, but the perseverance of the saints depends upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. And then it says this. Now, that's a sermon by itself. Then it says this, the, the, the perseverance of the saints depends not upon our free will, but upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. There it is. 
There's a lot of reasons that, that he is not going to fail, but there's one of them that we're talking about in our text. Peter's perseverance in the faith of Jesus, in his faith in Jesus Christ. The reason he's not chaffed, the reason he does not finally and totally fall away is because Jesus prayed for him. Jesus praying for you. We're going to talk about them in a minute. But it doesn't depend on Peter's will to will himself back. It depends on Jesus. The efficacy, these are wonderful words, the efficacy and the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. Peter has been prayed for before the throne of God. Jesus preached to, to, to Judas. Jesus prayed for Simon Peter. And all his prayers are always answered. Always answered. So let's talk about some applications. First, first, you and I, we have an adversary. The Bible calls him Satan. The Bible calls him serpent. The Bible calls him roaring lion. The Bible calls him angel of light. Do not, folks, do not underestimate this person. He has superior intelligence to us. He has superior strength to us. And he has experienced for thousands of years of being a trapper, of setting traps, of tricking and deceiving God's people. He presents himself before God. He seeks to undo you. He has permission to tempt us. And you and I, we need to always, you know, the main temptation, the main temptation is always this. Just get your eyes off of Jesus. We studied about that yesterday in the men's group. What are we supposed to do, guys? Hebrews 12. We're supposed to fix our eyes on our strength. No, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But the temptation is to, hey, fix your eyes on your own. Fix your eyes on yourself. We need to always remember to keep our eyes fixed on the atoning blood of Jesus. Second, you and I, we have responsibility knowing that we have an adversary, knowing that he desires to, to prove that we're false Christians, we're not real, knowing that we ought to be armed and we ought to be responsible, Peter. <laughs> Peter, you should have asked for that crash course on prayer, but he didn't. Ask for it. You and I, we need to be responsible to ask for the crash course. Lord, do not let, lead me into temptation. And if I'm in temptation, Lord, show me the way out. Show me the grace and give me the grace on the, to, to know the way out and take it. We need to read our Bibles and cling to Jesus, our advocate, and draw near to him. We place all our trust and all our hope in him and his advocacy alone. He's our help. And if you fail to be responsible, let, let's write this down. One of our men came over to me just before we, we had our service, and he said something to me, and here's what, it, here's what he said, and I'm going to say it in the pulpit. Make no mistake, it's your responsibility if you fail. It's your sin. It's Peter's sin. It's my responsibility to obey. And when I fail, and you and I, if we fail, we, are gonna, we should go out and weep bitterly. We do not know we do not know the words that were said. We do not know this, this episode except that it says that he turned again. And the word turned there is the same word for him falling into the bottom of the boat and crying out, I'm a sinful man. It's almost it's like he's being born all over again. <laughs> okay? I am a sinful man. Against you and you only have I done what is evil in your sight. Woe. 
he could be saying, am I, for I'm undone. Third, you and I, we only will be saved because we have an advocate with the Father. Remember before Jesus ever warned Peter of the great contest that he was about to go through, he tells him, I've been offering up secret pleadings, certain pleadings for you before the throne of God. And Jesus Christ is our advocate as well. You and I, we have an advocate with the Father. His name is Jesus Christ the righteous. And our advocate's doing two things. I want you to think about this. Our advocate is doing two things. Right now, it's really interesting as you study the Old Testament. Once a sacrifice is made, the blood needs to be sprinkled so the blood can be seen to show that it's been done. It's been offered. And so Jesus goes before the Father, and he has his blood, if you will, before the Father, proving that what happened on the cross did happen, as if God wouldn't know. But it's for us to see. Here's the blood. Here's the absolute proof that I've died once and for all for my people. So if you think about your faith in Jesus Christ, your faith is in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is there before the Father, and that what he's doing right there before the Father is yours. His blood sacrifice is yours, and that blood is before the Father's eyes, and he sees it, and he approves of you when you receive Jesus by faith. This is one of the things Jesus has done. But the second thing Jesus is doing, even though the cross work is finished, he's not up there twiddling his thumbs going, okay, I'm just waiting on them to get here. The Bible teaches us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, he's passed through the heavens and he's entered into the presence of God to be our high priest, sympathetic high priest, who knows our weaknesses and knows our temptations. He knows even though, listen, even though you are responsible to draw near, when you don't draw near, he's always drawing near. When you fail to ask God for grace, he's not failing to ask God for grace for you. You and I, we will only be saved by the atoning blood of our advocate and his certain secret pleadings before the Father at his right hand. And sometimes, you know, we've talked about this before, but let's say it one more time. God may allow you to get sort of full of yourself he may allow you to think you're so strong one day. He may allow you to go through these things and allow you to fail so that you would fall miserably and that you would be, be brought back by his prayers and shown that you need to, be, to depend upon him and not yourself. Your salvation, your perseverance in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ is not due to your will. It's not based on your merit but it's dependent upon the merit and the efficacy of your great high priest. He's your advocate, always pleading for you. The reason that you do not quit, the reason when you fail that you have tears of repentance, the reason that you say, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Remember what happens to Peter? <laughs> do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know all things. The only reason you say that you love him at the end of something like this is because Jesus is praying for you. Now, I I waited. <laughs> I was thinking about telling you all this at the beginning of the sermon. How in the world does Exodus 17, 8 through 16 fit with this? I want to show you. 
We have seen that if we have an epic fail, that's what the kids say right these days. They call them not just failures, they call them epic fail. Right, Evan? Epic fail. And so um, we've seen that if we have an epic failure in our lives, that we have an advocate who never ceases to make intercession for us, and we repent because of that. But what if, here's the question, what if we have an epic victory in our life? What if we have a whole month of a string of epic, epic obediences and epic victories in a row? What if we are prevailing? Who gets the credit for the epic victory? Who gets the credit for all the victories? And so I want to take you to Exodus 17, 8 through 16. You might want to read that um, this afternoon. In this text, the people of God have an adversary. Do you know who the adversary is? It's another A. Amalekites. The Amalekites. Do you know who the Amalekites are? There's Abraham who has Isaac. Isaac has Esau and Jacob. And Esau's grandson is Amalek. Esau represents the seed of the serpent. Esau's grandson, Amalek, represents a people opposed to God. And here's how they show their true colors. Do you remember who it was at Rephidim that came out and attacked Israel after they came out of Egypt? It was Amalekites. It was the grandson of Esau. And so here we are at Rephidim, and there's an adversary. And just like their father, Satan, the Amalekites come and attack them from where? They play dirty pool. Where do they attack them from? From the front or the back? From the back. Where the stragglers are where the women and the children and the animals are. They have no fear of God before their eyes. They're just like Satan. And so in verse 9, Moses, he is the leader of the people, and he goes to the general Joshua, and they set up a plan. And he says this, here's your, what you need to do. Tomorrow, you are going to go into battle. Before you go into battle in the valley, I want you to choose your warriors. I want you to get ready to go into battle tomorrow. I want you to give the commands. You're a good general. Do your business down in the valley. And I'm going to go up on the top of the hill with, Mo, with uh, Aaron and her. And so we will have two different positions. You will be in the valley. I will be on the top of the hill. Now, I want you to think about this only from Joshua's perspective for a second. Okay? Think about it. Here's Joshua. He's down in the valley. Joshua has chosen all his warriors. Joshua is very smart. He's a very good commander. He's very wise. He's down in the valley. And all of a sudden, think about it only from his perspective now. For a while, he's winning and prevailing. And then he loses. He's being prevailed against. And then he prevails, and then he loses, and he prevails, and he prevails, and he prevails, and he wins, and they defeat the Amalekites with the sword. That's his perspective, right? Why did Joshua win? Why did Joshua overwhelm the the adversary? Was it because of his obedience to Moses' command? Was it important for Joshua to take his responsibility serious? Yes, it was. It was important for him to go and do his duty. It was important for him to go in the valley. In fact, what he did was much better than Peter. Peter didn't do what was he was responsible to do, but Joshua did. Joshua goes and he fights and he overwhelms the Amalekites. But again, the question is, did Joshua prevail against the seed of the serpent, his adversary, the Amalekites, because he prepared? Because of his choice of his warriors? Because of his ability to lead, it was important for him to go down and do it. But the answer to the question is no. Let me explain. Now, in our text, 
These men are down in the valley, but another thing is happening on the top of the hill. There's a secret battle being waged before the judgment seat of God. And Moses and Aaron and Hur, they're on the top of the hill. And they realize as long as those hands are lifted up to God, the Amalekites will be defeated and Israel will prevail. But when he got tired, they noticed that the battle went the other direction. The Amalekites were overwhelming the Israelites. And so they saw that. And Aaron and Hur slid a rock underneath Moses. And one got on one side and one got on the other side. And they held his arms up. And then they saw the Israelites prevailed. Why did, Jer- why did Joshua win the battle? Why did Joshua fit the battle against the Amalekites, right? Not against the Jericho, right? Why did he do it? Because they had a man. They had a man on the top of the hill who was doing what? who was calling down all the grace they needed, all the strength and all the power they needed to prevail against their enemies. They had a man on the top of the hill. Now, from Joshua's perspective, he could think that the victory was due to his ability to choose warriors, to to give commands, and go out and direct the warfare down in the valley. But Moses was told by God to write all of this down and then bring Joshua in and read it to him, exactly what happened. It was important for you to do what you did. But the reason you have victory from our perspective is that you had a man on the top of the hill. Do you have a man on the top of the hill? You do, don't you? Jesus Christ is your man who's on the top of the hill. And you and I, we have this adversary, but we have an advocate, and he's always there on the top of the hill. And we learn two things. We learn that if I fail, I have somebody praying for me. And if after that failure I repent, it's because I got somebody praying for me. And if I win a great victory or a whole string of victories, why do I have those victories? Well, I need to put it, put it down to the fact that I have somebody on the top of the hill who's praying for me that I might go out and obey. Don't take the credit if you have a whole string of victories for the next two months. <laughs> Remember, it's the prayers of your advocate Jesus That's why you're able to meet your trials here. And remember that if you do repent and you have tears in your eyes over your sin, it's because you have an advocate, Jesus. For you and I who belong to Jesus Christ at all times, there are secret pleadings that are in progress before the face of God as we continue in our valley. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for knowing that we have a man who's on the top of the hill. We have a man who's seated at your right hand. Whoever lives to raise up his hands in intercession for us. And Father, we don't. We, we pray that you will help us to be responsible, to pray, to draw near to you. But Lord, at times we will find ourselves failing. We need to accept our responsibility. And when we repent, we need to rejoice that we have a man who is praying for us at all times. And Lord, we need to remember every time we have a week or a month or two months of just tremendous enjoyment of walking with you and obedience to you, we need to remember that it's not because we're so good, it's because we have someone praying for us all the energy and all the grace that we need to to meet all our trials here on this earth in this valley help us remember this today lord help us to remember we have a man 
on the top of the hill. It, his name is Jesus, and he is always for us. Who in the world can be against us? Help us hold on to this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.